We're continuing on this morning, Acts chapter 4. We're going to get right into it. I'd ask if you have your Bible, please open it to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses, really honing in and looking at the first four, but we're going to read the first 12 together. So would you please stand with me as we read We're coming off the heels of a sermon, impromptu sermon that was given by Peter to those in the temple. And so as we get into chapter 4, it says, as they were speaking, they being Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid their hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is, no, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom and the power that it brings into our lives. How your word uh, does free us from uh, the, 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 the bonds of sin and death, Father. That's what it, your word says, that it brings liberation and freedom to those that were once captive. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection, all for our sake. Thank you. Father, I pray that you would give us courage to live in a manner that is worthy of the good news that we've just read about. Father, I pray that you would especially strengthen all those pastors who are preaching your word today, just as Peter and John were preaching it back then. Father, I pray that you would be near those that stand upon your word, who declare it, that you would give them strength and your power, that you would give them your protection, that you would bless their word. And Father, I pray that wherever it is spoken with sincerity, it would go out with power, that you would work through it, Father. Raise up in our country and in this city men who have been transformed by the power of your word, who have experienced it for themselves, Father, and I pray that you would give them voice to others to speak your truth. 
Now, Father, I pray that as we look at your word and think about what it has for us, that you would be with our minds and our hearts. Help us to be focused. I pray that our thoughts would be pleasing to you, that the meditations of our hearts would be honoring to you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior whom we love, that we pray this prayer. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start this morning by telling you about a situation that happened to me a few years ago. More than a few years ago now, I guess as you get older, this happens. Seems like it was a few years ago, it was a number of years ago now. But I used to oversee uh, our junior high and senior high youth programs. And one of the things that I did one year is I decided to take a trip with a, a small handful of those youth up to an island in, uh, I think it was Lake Superior, Grand Isle, Lake Superior, and go on a backpacking trip. I always thought it was nice to be able to spend time with some of the youth want, sort of in more in a one-on-one situation, and I think it's good for guys to have to do hard things together. So I got a small group of guys together, and we went up to Grand Isle. We were going to backpack this whole thing. And I, I can't remember when we were going. It was sometime in the summer. But I knew that there was the chance of there being mosquitoes on the island at that point in the year. But I thought to myself, eh, mosquitoes, mosquitoes. You know, I've dealt with mosquitoes before. So we got in the car. We drove up to, to Munising. And we hopped on. Uh, we, we went to this ferry that was going to take us out to the island. And it was the last ferry ride of the day. And I remember as we were going across the water to, to, to the island, I was making small talk with the captain of that little, little boat. And he was asking us about what we were doing. And I was saying, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to be up here for a week. We're going to go backpacking all around the island. And he started to look nervous. He said, do you have... Uh, Nets, you know, full body nets, you know, it's mos- the mosquitoes are bad this time of year. I said, no, I've got 100% DEET, we'll be fine. <laughs> so, you know, he, I, I got the sense he was a little apprehensive about our predicament, the situation I was leading these young high schoolers into. We arrived on the island and uh, he said, you know, there's a ferry, there'll be another ferry here tomorrow morning if you need anything. <laughs> I said, we'll be fine, thanks. And uh, so we start off onto our hike. The mosquitoes really weren't that bad at the beginning. I, I remember uh, it was, like I said, late in the afternoon, getting toward evening time. And as we were sort of making our way into the trailhead, we saw a couple rangers coming out for their day. They were taking the ferry ride back that we were coming on. And I do note, remember noticing that the rangers that were coming off the island were wearing these wide-brimmed hats, like super wide, with nets that went all the way down to the ground. And I remember thinking, I wonder what that's about. So we started walking, and I got to tell you, if I, there's, there's been few moments in my life where I thought I was literally going to lose my mind. But as we started walking, one, two miles in, three miles in, by mile three, I was starting to lose my mind. 
I've never experienced the kind of mosquitoes that I experienced on that trip. I remember walk, I, re, I remember losing the sight of my skin to mosquitoes, just swarming me, wiping my arm, seeing, you know, all the blood from the mosquitoes, wiped, smeared up my arm, and then within five seconds, more mosquitoes covering my arm so that I couldn't even see the skin. I, it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was a terrible experience. Horrible. At three miles in, we turned, I remember <laughs> turning around, we ran back to where we had started. There was this little shed that the rangers used. We all climbed into the shed, spent the night in the shed, and then took the fer first ferry boat out the next morning. <laughs> I was totally caught off guard by how bad it was going to be on the island. I was surprised and I was unprepared. If I had been prepared, what I would have experienced on that island probably would have been more endure, I could have been able to endure it better because I, I would have been prepared, I would have brought the right stuff, I would have had one of those silly wide-brimmed hats with a net that went all the way to the, under the ground. But I was not prepared, I was surprised, and that meant I was vulnerable. It caused me to have to turn around and all of uh, the, the youth I was leading to turn around. I did not count the cost of that trip seriously. Somebody had mentioned to me that it was going to be mosquito season, but I did not consider that as well as I should have. And though I can afford to do that with a trip to Grand Isle, and though it makes for a good story, none of us can afford to do that sort of thing with our Christian walk. If we are to be faithful, we must count the cost of a life that we are committing to when we become Christians. Many make commitments without considering the implications of what the Christian life is or what it requires of them. Many are quick to make a commitment when they don't fully understand what they are signing up for. And so Jesus says this, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He then says, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see whether or not he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all those who observe it will begin to ridicule him saying he began what he's not able to finish. So this morning, what I'd like to do with our time together is I want to highlight four things that you should not be surprised by when you're committing to a, to a life of faithful Christian service, a life of Christian devotion. I want to highlight four things from our passage that we need to anticipate so that we're not surprised and caught off guard like I was on that trip to Grand Isle. This is part of counting the cost of a life that honors God. So we're going to go through four of them. These come from verses 1 through 4 primarily. The first thing that you should not be surprised by is this. Do not be surprised when you are mistreated for living by the Word of God. Thus far in Acts... We've seen 
pretty much only happy things. There's been a little bit of mockery of the, of the disciples, but there really hasn't been any notable persecution, hardship. Uh, there's been a lot of fellowship together and really wonderful things, um, but not really much persecution. Our verses this morning break that streak. Of course, conflict with the religious leaders and persecution by their hands wasn't a surprise to the apostles. Throughout the years that they accompanied Jesus on earth, they had not been strangers to the dangers or persecution uh, that, 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 that they experienced when they were with Christ. Jesus had never shied away from instructing them about the opposition that they would face for his sake after he left them. If you remember back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the very beginning, Jesus closed out the portion of his sermon when talking about the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and, and say all sorts of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, knowing that you're being persecuted in the same way that the prophets before you were persecuted. But later in his life, when he was talking with his disciples one-on-one, he told them that persecution wasn't just a matter of if, but when, that persecution would come. He says, remember that a word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep your word also. So if you're serious about committing to the Christian life, then you must endure hardship and persecution. If you're serious about living by the word of God, know that these are things that will come. And to the extent that you decide to live by the word of God, you will, you will be persecuted. Jesus has been upfront about the terms. He has never tried to play down or cheapen the sacrifice that following after him would entail. Jesus would have been a sort of terrible salesman, always highlighting the cost of following after him. It was just woven through a lot of his teaching to the disciples. And yet, this highlighting the cost is consistent with him urging us time and time again to consider the cost of following him, the cost of discipleship. It should be no surprise to us that desire to live godly lives that there will be persecution and hardship. The reason for this is that we live in a world that is, that is hostile to God. Jesus says that they persecute us because they persecuted him. That when we suffer, it's not for our sake alone, but it's for his sake. The world is hostile to the truth of God. The world is hostile to the idea that there is a authority, an authority that rules over us that we will give an account to. Throughout the Bible, there is a general promise of hardship that all Christians must endure. But beyond this, in our passage this morning, there is another principle illustrated, and that is 
that opposition will come most sharply when the word is proclaimed most powerfully. That opposition will come most sharply to those that are standing on the word of God most strongly. So you could sort of think about it this way. To the extent that you live your life based on the word of God, standing firmly on it, the stronger you stand on the word of God, the more right you have to expect that you will be opposed. You understand that? That's what's going on in our passage. When you live by the word of God, do not be surprised when Satan seeks to attack you. Satan exerts all of his power to prevent the word of God from going forth. And when his word begins to be made known, the wicked will oppose it vigorously. Because the wicked are the devil's instruments for waging war against God and his son, Jesus Christ. That is what Luke is now bringing to our attention. We have read over the last number of weeks how the apostles taught the people publicly and how that this was a sign that the gospel was now going publicly forth into all the world. And it is precisely here that we find the devil making serious inroads against that endeavor. The word of God is preached, as Jesus said before his death, not just on this mountain, but everywhere. The word of God is going forth publicly, not just to the Jews, but it's going to be going forth to the Gentiles. There have been thousands of people that have heard the word of God and have responded, and Satan is seeking to put an end to this. He is laboring to put a stop to the good news. The, perse- the persecution we see in our passage is an attempt to test the faith of the apostles and all of those that are associating with them. The devil has always railed against God's word. He has always sought to oppose it because the word of God brings life and hope. From the very beginning, it was the word of God that Satan attacked most strongly. Think back to Genesis. What are we told? In Genesis, it was God's word, his promises that Satan sought to undermine. Satan came to Eve in the garden and said, did God really say, did God really say that was at the beginning of the world? After God had first created man and woman, he gave them his word and he called them to live in line with it. Satan made that the exact focal point of his attack. Is is it purely coincidental that several thousand years later, at the moment that Jesus began his public ministry, we see the exact same thing? I don't think so. When Jesus entered his public ministry around the age of 30, he went off into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And we're told that Satan came to him and tempted him again, three times, each time seeking to undermine the righteousness and the perfection of Christ by attacking him at the core of who he was, which is the the word. 
Three times Satan tempted Jesus, even using the very word of God, but twisting it, perverting it, seeking to undermine the word that God had given. I've spoken about Satan attacking the word at creation and at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and now in the beginning of these chapters of Acts, we read about the birth of the church, and we see that again, Satan is rearing up to attack the word of God, to undercut it. As Peter and John were speaking, as they were preaching to these people, the freedom and the hope that they had in Jesus the Nazarene, as they were seeking to teach these people about the Savior that offered himself for them, the priests, the captain of the temple, the guard, and the Sadducees came to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. You can picture the scene. All of these religious leaders rushing in to confront this message, to divert the people's attention, to break up the assembly, to silence the word. And we should not be surprised as to why this is the case. The Bible says that Satan roams this world seeking to oppose the cause of Christ. Satan is not stupid. It is the most basic tactic of warfare not to waste time or energy on those that pose no threat. All those who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. If you're committed to living a life that is directed by the word of God, that stands on the word of God, that seeks to proclaim the word of God, then you are a threat to Satan. And therefore, you will be the focal point of his attack. He doesn't waste time on things that don't matter to him. He doesn't waste his time on people that pose no threat to him and to his agenda. You recognize this. Jesus says, no servant is greater than his master. So this is the first thing that you shouldn't be surprised at when you're committed to living as a faithful Christian. If we have not given serious consideration to what the Christian life will bring to you, consider Satan's work in our passage. We cannot afford to be surprised or caught off guard. Second, do not be surprised when your enemies band together against you. Notice who it was that rushed into the temple. We're told that there are three groups, the priests, the captain of the bodyguard, and the Sadducees. Why the specificity by Luke? Well, in one manner of speaking, he, this is very representative of Luke's writing. Luke was a doctor, and so he is used to writing scrupulous notes. He was good with details. He takes his work as a historian very seriously. But this alone is not the reason why we're given this detail on who rushed into the apostles and who was at the trial the next day. It was all the religious leaders it was not merely one sect of them. In the New Testament, there were several groups of religious leaders mentioned at various places in, in, in Israel. The two main groups were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Of these two, it seems that Jesus argued a lot more with the Pharisees 
And I don't think it was because the Pharisees were worse, but because they were actually better than the Sadducees. Sadducees. In a certain way, it's almost as if Jesus writes off the Sadducees in a way he doesn't the Pharisees. The Sadducees were more progressive and more godless. Uh, These two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were in competition with each other. And there were fundamental areas of conflict between them. Perhaps the greatest disagreement centered on the resurrection. The difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that the Sadducees denied the fact of the resurrection. They didn't think anyone would be resurrected. The Pharisees did. Strikingly, it is on this very point of the resurrection that all the temple leaders banded together in opposition of Peter and John and the message that they proclaimed. They were disturbed because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection in Jesus from the dead. And so we hear the words of Psalm 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and their rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. We shouldn't be surprised when the wicked band together and find common cause against us. This reality is prevalent all throughout the Bible. We see it in so many of the Psalms of David. David, that godly king, time and time again wrote things like this in his Psalms. All my enemies band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. That's the way David oftentimes felt. When you feel like everyone is against you, it can be very defeating. It can seem unfair. It can be wearing. And yet, we can't afford to be surprised when this happens. The Bible says it will happen. It doesn't say it will be easy, but it says that it will happen. We can't afford to be surprised by this. You may remember The story of Elijah after the showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It was a great success. It was a great display of God's power and his truth. But almost immediately, what was it followed with? Almost immediately, Elijah feels depressed and hopeless. He felt like everyone was against him, even after this seemingly great victory. He says this to God, I have been zealous for you, but all the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He felt as if a great injustice had been done. He'd been zealous and faithful. And what was the result? He felt like everyone was against him. Now, there will be times where you will feel like Elijah. There will be points when you feel like you are being oppressed by all sides. Like even enemies that hate each other are finding common cause in joining against you. This happened often in the early church. If you read the early church history, what you'll see is that even in this, you know, within 50 years of the book of Acts, we see that the Jews and the Romans are banding together in oppression of the Christians. This has always been the case. What I want to say to you is this. Don't be surprised by it and don't forget 
the assurance that if God is for you, who can be against you? God's enemies will make common cause against you because, because they've made common cause against him. But if God is for you, who can be against you? It's the second thing that you shouldn't be surprised by. The third thing is don't be surprised when the most dangerous method Satan can employ is an inside job. Now, what I mean, uh, this, is, this point is a little bit allegorical in nature. It's striking that the tool Satan uses to undercut the preaching and the teaching of the apostles is nothing less than the highest ranking religious leaders of the day. Those that should have been at the forefront of embracing the Messiah and teaching salvation in Christ are those who are leading the charge against him. In verse 6, we're told that Annas and Caiaphas and all who are of high priestly descent were central to the persecution of Peter and John. There's a lesson to be learned here about our own lives. This was an inside job, in a manner of speaking, an inside job. A crime committed by a person working on the inside. The Bible presents to us three different sources of temptation that come at us. These are three different methods that Satan seeks to to, uh, fight against us. And these are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the simple point that I would like to make allegorically based on this passage is that the opposition to the gospel did not come from the Romans, but from the inside. It came from the religious leaders. This is the hardest sort of opposition to withstand, isn't it? It's always the hardest when opposition comes from close to home. It's when our own hearts are tempted that we are most at risk. It's when we internally want what is wrong that Satan seeks to stand the best chance against us. This truth is illustrated here. It's also illustrated in the betrayal of Jesus. It's not for no reason that it was one of Jesus' closest friends that betrayed him. It was also an inside job. We must not make the mistake of viewing external sources outside of us as being the most tempting. When we make the mistake of thinking that it's all the stuff on the outside that poses the biggest threat to us, we invariably fail. We must not be surprised when the most dangerous method, the most lethal weapon Satan can seek to employ is an inside job, when it is actually playing to the desires of our own hearts. The reason I point this out is that it's always convenient for us to think that It's everything on the outside that is the greatest threat. But the Bible says that it's from the inside. It's the inside of the cup that's dirty. It's not not that on the outside. So we need to be reminded of this as we count the cost. All right. We've been talking about counting the cost. I've spent a good bit of time talking about the inevitable challenges and hardships that all true disciples will face. And the last thing that I want to say to you this morning is this. Do not be surprised when God works all these hardships for your good and for his glory. Do not be surprised at the plot twist at the end. In the verses we read together, we 
begin with the word of God being preached. Then we are greeted with strong opposition. All the religious leaders come rushing in against Peter and John, wielding both their anger and their intimidation. They make sure to take the temple police with them, and they place Peter and John in jail. And then they convene a trial for them where they intimidate them and charge them not to speak anymore in Jesus' name. But what was the result of that? What was the outcome of that situation? Verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. And then verse 4, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Why the hardship? Why the opposition? Because without it, our faith isn't tested And the true strength of the gospel is not made known. Satan tried his best, and yet, even as Peter and John were being taken away to spend that night in a jail cell, we see the power of the word of God that was preached worked in the lives of 5,000 men who turned to Jesus Christ. What power and strength. Without opposition, the true strength of the gospel is not seen. Do you recognize that? A few months ago, we posted a a dresser, I think it was, on sale, uh, for sale on Facebook. And somebody contacted us about buying it. And I wasn't home, but I was told by Aaliyah that when the guy showed up to buy the dresser, he was a bodybuilding hunk. Now, those weren't her words, but those are my words. She said he was wearing a tight T-shirt with his muscles all bulging through the fabric, stretching it out, and Micaiah was impressed. After he agreed to purchase it, he backed up his truck to our garage where the dresser was, and that's when things got awkward. This guy uh, with his bulging muscles didn't know how to get the, the dresser into the bed of his truck. And Aaliyah said it was quite awkward because he sort of, without saying anything, indicated that he wanted her and Micaiah to load the dresser for him because he wasn't sure, you know, how how to do it. And so my pregnant wife and my 12-year-old son loaded the furniture while he stood by looking at them. When the guy had left, Micaiah made this comment, I thought that guy was going to be strong. (laughs) The man might have looked strong, But when it came to exerting strength, he showed himself to be weak. True strength is not shown until there is some resistance that is put up against it. True power isn't seen for what it really is until there are forces that are at work against it. And in the end, the great power of God will be clear for all to see. All the religious firepower that the Jews could throw at the apostles was not any match for the God that they served. Despite the hardships and the conflicts that we will most certainly undergo, there is this truth that holds us steady, and that is that in the end, victory is assured. That there is not purposelessness behind our hardships, but rather they serve to declare the glorious strength of God. 
Though Peter and John were taken away and put in jail, silenced from the it's, If you look at the passage, it's almost as if, you know, verse 26 of the former chapter, it's the, sort of the crescendo to what's being said, but then verse 1 of chapter 4, it looks as if they're even cut off, that their sermon is quite interrupted, and they're taken away sort of midway through the sermon. Though they're taken away and put in jail, God was changing the hearts of 5,000 men. It doesn't even speak to the women or others that were there, the children. What a glorious thing. What a glorious upset in what you think would actually happen in this situation. As you count the cost of living for Christ, recognize that there will be challenges There will be persecution. Don't be surprised by this. But also remember that all the resistance we may face only serves to show how glorious and strong God is and just how powerful his word is. Don't be surprised when God works all your hardships to your good and for his glory. He promises you that he will. It is those who carry the cross that are able to say we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. More than conquerors.